Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we float weird and wonderful science through your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, you'll hear part two of my interview with Kiriti Rambalta, CEO of Metacosmos, designing and building spacesuits and related technologies in Sydney. First, you'll hear the second part of our Zoom discussion, and then you'll hear a later follow-up interview recorded at the Metacosmos facility itself. But first, here's the Zoom. For the astronauts wearing the suits, would they have some sort of augmented reality display to have an idea of what's happening in the suit and to get the feedback? So that concept has been floating around. I think I remember looking at a NASA demonstration as well where people could have access to a heads-up display with some information for directions inside the International Space Station. What we've realized during some of our early engineering design processes was cognitive load is a real thing for astronauts. And when they are in microgravity or low gravity conditions, because we have such a few data set of people that have been into space, it's hard to know if there's going to be 100% attention being given to everything that's being displayed on the screen. So you'd want to eliminate the information as as opposed to like putting in more information in the, in the visible field. So augmented reality and virtual reality are great possibilities for the pre-flight training conditions. During in-flight, you'd want to limit the amount of information you're pumping in. So they're actually focusing on the fundamentals and the basics. And then post-flight would also be a very different condition where you're doing more strength training, where I think you could look at things, but I'm not entirely sure of the concentration levels that you'd be able to grab because you need to be at a certain level of cognitive ability to engage in augmented or virtual reality. So you need the astronauts to be focused, not distracted by trying to do too many things at once. And I guess also the other problem is with heads-up displays, you're obscuring what they can see. (laughs) which might get in the way of doing their work or surviving. I would agree, yes. And perhaps with more effective designs, and if we could send more people into those conditions in the future, they'd be more adapted to perform at their peak in those conditions. And that's when you can start loading in more information. But at this stage, it's a delicate balance between giving them the right amount of information and allowing them to see and adapt to the environment based on their cognitive ability at that point. I guess there's a lot of people supporting every astronaut who's in space because so much is involved to make it happen and then to support them doing the work while they're there. So you've got to have people remotely trained in operating and understanding and assisting with the spacesuit while the astronaut's using it in space. Exactly. I think um, there's a lot of conversation on whether there could be real-time engagement with astronauts once they're up there. Uh, I think technologies are being developed now to ensure there is a real-time link. However, uh, once you're there in extreme conditions, not being able to establish a 
data connection is a real possibility, in which case you need to operate remotely. And so you need to have access to all of your instructions and understand how you could abort your missions if there's an issue and all of that by yourself. So we're kind of like, you know, approaching it from a independent operation standpoint in our design as well, which is why we're doing deep sea design testing or places where you don't have access to internet, how would you still be able to engage in certain data conversations is the focus area for us. But the design process and the support process has taken into account a lot of people in ground stations, usually trying to help the astronauts as much as they can, but remotely operating should always also be a priority along with engaging with these space stations. And you mentioned you'd also be involved in spacesuits, especially for training. So what's the difference in the design of a suit that's training someone to go, but isn't quite the suit that they'll be using when they're in space? I think when we say training, we're definitely looking at the pre-flight training programs for astronaut cadets or the astronaut candidates themselves. So they'd have to go through a bunch of environmental training programs, they go underwater. And there's also the analog missions that you probably would have heard of, like the Mars societies and people creating dome-like structures or going into really extreme areas just to experience what it feels like to be in those suits. Now, those suits don't have to be radiation resistant because it's on Earth. And there's a lot of life support system design that may not be a part of those suits. So you can actually have a light version of the designs that you actually send into space in those designs. And they could be for very specific training patterns like range of motion testing, for instance. So if someone's putting on a suit to test their joint mobility, it doesn't need to have maybe a lot of access to life support systems that would reduce the weight of the entire our system, whereas the actual system that goes into space would be a lot heavier and you need to train on managing that load. Well, granted in weightlessness, you wouldn't be experiencing that weight, but when you train here, you need to still be comfortable with that entire structure on you. So the training program could be very modular in nature, so you can take certain components at certain times, and it could also be for behavioral research sometimes. So people are just putting themselves in large costumes to understand how it feels like to be in isolation in a costume like that. So that's the big difference, I would say, between the one that would go into space and the ones that you would be used, using in trading. And would Metacosmos also be building some training environments in Australia? So we are looking at collaborations right now, early stages, but we're seeing if we could collaborate with people who can build giant pools is one, or create a simulated microgravity experience where you could have people in our suits floating in the environment just to experience what it feels like to be in microgravity. And then you have all these outback conditions that are very similar to perhaps maybe a Martian surface when you just look at them, visually speaking. So how do you maneuver things in suits or move samples for scientific research? And all of that is something we're currently looking at. So you can build a program for people that could take into consideration how you would use the suit and the condition itself. But it would happen in collaboration with infrastructure providers or perhaps even universities. How many employees do you have? Are you hiring or you've got the team you need for now? 
Because we're a startup, we started off with suppliers who've been in the business for about two or three decades, helping us with certain designs and subcomponents that we needed to build. We've started the PhD engagement program with APR Network, which is the Australian Postgraduate Research Network that helped us with our PhD students for specific projects. So we've brought in so far, I think we've we've engaged with three PhD students till date through that program, and we've just opened the internships for undergraduate students as well. And so we have about five undergraduate students who are interns with us at this point, uh, coming from universities all over Australia, from University of Western Australia to University of Technology in Sydney. So there's a different program for them compared to the PhD students. We would be looking at employment in the future based on the funding conditions in 2023. Some of the questions that we usually get are around, is there a demand for spacesuits? So what we wanted to tell people is there's a lot of latent demand out there. A lot of people would like to get into an astronaut suit for the experience, if not for anything else. So if there is an opportunity, I think there's going to be a huge demand in the future. And we believe this is a critical piece that could solve the accessibility issue to human spaceflight. So we're looking at a market where you might have more than 100,000 people getting into spacesuits in the future. Again, their capacity of engagement could range from recreational purposes all the way to like actual training and going into space. So excited at what could be coming up in the next five or 10 years in this space. Well, Kuriti, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. A week later, I visited Metacosmos to see the facility for myself and switched on my recorder. There is some noise from employees working on different projects in the background. I began by asking Kiriti, what is the niche that distinguishes Metacosmos from other spacesuit companies? I've been looking at a lot of businesses, worked in a lot of countries so the idea was to know what makes a successful business so there's always an interest in what are the factors that bring together certain aspects of a successful business and specifically in the spacesuit industry you know you're dealing with a lot of raw materials a lot of subcomponents which probably explains why over the years there's been a group of companies that came together in a consortium of sorts to support services for organizations like NASA, but I think there is a possibility in the future to vertically integrate these things and and be a company that could provide end-to-end solutions for spacesuits. I believe that is an area that we're working on currently, and we've had relatively, I would say, some success early on. So we've had some great organizations that have been there for a while, helping us with what's at the horizon or at the edge in terms of tech, helping us bridge the gap and helping us understand what might be coming next in those domains. And we were able to bring that all together into a very exciting product roadmap. So I think the story is kind of exciting for us because of the partnerships that we're building. And yeah, we're looking forward to what it holds for us in the future. Spacesuits look like they'd be very, very uncomfortable at present. What can be done to make it easier for the astronauts? Definitely, I think I could start with certain what we call boundary conditions that are defined by organizations like NASA where the first thing at the top is always comfort and make sure that it is safe and it's always function over form. So there's always an element of 
designing things to make it comfortable for people. Mm -hmm. But given the sheer scale of what goes into making a spacesuit, a lot of times the form takes a hit, and then you also have a certain element of function coming in, and maybe certain areas that might not be the most effective for a human to be in. So I think there is an opportunity now for us to use the technologies of the day to make it a little more comfortable, but we're putting a framework which is more quantitative in nature so you could explain. A good example there is range of motion, degrees of freedom. I mean, can you move? Can you be acrobatic inside the suit as a way to understand things? Although I'm not sure if you could do a backflip yet in, in the suits, but the idea is to make it as comfortable as possible so people could engage in more acrobatic sort of activities. And that would help us design better suits as we move along because you'd get more data from them. So collecting data on the human performance inside the suit, we believe, is the key to designing more effective suits in the future. And if you're getting people to do backflips, would they have powered assist in the suit for their movements? So there is a way to understand essentially how the joints are designed today. So there are motor functions that you could build inside them, which is pretty evident when you see some of the, the prototypes that NASA is working on. And it all comes down to the pressure you're building inside the suit and the joint torques that you should work with. And essentially everyone's got a different tolerance level to the joint torques that they could apply which means some people who are working out or maybe are well conditioned in, in a certain sense could operate better inside the suits. Others might need more help. So what you do is you go for a design which could accommodate all these things. So you've got some assistive technologies, some exoskeleton-like components that could assist you with that specific movement. And every joint has its own movement defined in biomechanics. So we study that to make sure that opportunity is there for people to operate within the range of motion that's physically allowed for that specific joint. So you would have perhaps some motors helping people that have trouble moving the joints to be able to swivel their knees and their elbows and basically against the, the weight of the suit. So there's ways in which you could get over those problems and everyone tries to keep that a secret because that's their trade secret or something. But the way people should look at this is essentially once you start building pressure, you've got a lot of joint torques people will have issues at some point to carry out certain kinds of activities. So what you need to do is train in those specific sequences to ensure that you're performing well. If not, you've already identified the areas where there's difficulty, so you start working on you know, those areas. But by and large, as I mentioned, there are certain boundary conditions. Eventually, the suit is going to be in a 100% oxygen kind of a, uh, enclosure. So that means any electrical failures would mean disastrous things. Um, so you'd want to limit the amount of electrical, electromi- I wouldn't say mechanical, electrical and electronics uh, footprint as low as possible inside the suit. So it's tempting to just put in as many electronics as we can, uh, but you'd also want to look at ways in which you could simplify the engineering and yet achieve the same result, which means we're trying to build something that is low torque but high in mobility, low energy expenditure but high in acrobatic or athletic abilities. So that's a balance that would be great to achieve. It's a bit of a dynamic tension, is it? You're trying to do a lot of one thing but not too much of that thing because you've got competing interest there with safety and with usability yeah so you can't just shove more technology in there because then you've got too much technology in there exactly and a good example is how you've got astronauts still putting on certain instructions on paper on their arms 
because technology may not work in, in microgravity or space conditions. So you're always kind of having backup measures uh, on the suit. So the idea, as you said, is to get the right balance so you're not over-engineering certain problems. At the same time, you're underserving the problems that are actually there. So you got to hit that optimal level of technology integration. And at the same time, you got to be pushing the boundaries in terms of what you could do with the suits and make them better as you move along. So these suits will still be quite massive, and in zero gravity or low gravity, you've still got to push against the mass, even if it weighs less. So is that part of what this putting some machinery but not too much is about? Yeah, I think obviously weightlessness means you could technically make a suit as heavy as possible, but then you've got these conditions of launch and then you got to be having re re-entry into the orbit and all of those things that will be impacted. So you want to make sure that the suits are as light as possible for that reason, but the costs are coming down as we speak every day. Uh, so you could put more uh, cargo on your on your rockets, which means you have more opportunities to make your suits heavy. But then it's a question of essentially the features that you're trying to build. Now, if that weight is coming through life support systems to sustain maybe an eight to ten to twelve hour operation, which is independent, then that is a worthwhile investment that you could look at versus are we adding more opportunities that you know improve data transfers uh, between the suit and the space station and earth you could still do that in different ways but if that adds the technology footprint you might want to reconsider and as you just mentioned prioritization ruthless prioritization with certain boundary conditions which are very very critical so if something's improving the weight but it gives you more safety perhaps you'd want to pick that one up versus something would give you more technical features but could jeopardize your electronics or failures which might lead to sparks then you might want to get rid of those things so what's the next big milestone that you're aiming for that'll let you know you're on the right path so there's quite a few things as a business what we'd like to do is start generating positive cash flow. So that would be extremely critical because as a business model, a lot of people still have questions on what's the demand. I mean, is there a market large enough for a business to be sustainable building spacesuits? So the, the next big milestone for us is to see if we could commercialize our base layer and see where the applications would be here on, on Earth. So we're exploring different avenues on land. And if that is successful, then there is an indicator that you could start building off those investments into maybe building suits for other use cases that we were referring to, like underwater cases or air air force. And we're we're trying to do that in parallel, but the first goalpost for us would be building that base layer and making sure it's generating cash flow. It's a big risk starting up a business and starting up a business in space, well, in the space technologies. So what are the extra things that, if someone had a, a brilliant idea and wanted to try and follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think I've, I've read quite a few interesting things about the startups in general, and there's a categorization, essentially. So if you're an internet or, well, all businesses have a great chance of failure, but in general, if you're looking at software or internet businesses, they're relatively hard. And then times 10, if you're working on a hardware technology, and times thousand maybe if you're working on space tech. 
which means the chances of failure are super high, but you're going to be pushing the boundaries of tech. So for someone who's looking at coming into this, we'd highly encourage them to work on technologies that have dual-use applications. So they could be explored for innovative use cases here on Earth. And while doing that, you build your competencies and capabilities to put those things up in space. I think that's a great way to, to get into the business. Having said that, all businesses have a very strong chance of failure. So, you know, that's something that people should keep in their mind. We're looking forward to a lot of space-ready resources uh, in the future. That means there would be a demand for more people to go into microgravity. So we're, we're hopefully going to be around at that time providing suits for them. So there's a lot of geopolitics around the space industry. Oh, definitely. I think everything goes back to the geopolitics because politics will be designing the policy frameworks which would be dictating the business decisions in the long term and as you can see now there's a lot of focus from defense in space technologies and that's being done across the board across all kinds of technologies and some countries are a lot more aggressive in the way they're testing their tech which means everyone's on the edge and they're trying to like engage in that one-upmanship sort of game where they need to have better tech, uh, which is a good thing because, you know, people will start pushing the boundaries of technology in terms of research. But so far from what we're seeing, there's a lot of positive interest on exploring a diversified portfolio of technologies within space from the defense side as well. So I think there is there's a healthy environment as far as we're concerned on the commercial side, but I think there's going to be definitely a lot of competition in the geopolitics space that's going to determine where the investments will be in the future. So I think we're looking at a a very strong investment, I guess, climate for space from both defence and commercial aspects. And we've had the Australian Space Agency go from being an idea that people laughed at, that it, that it had this chuckle factor or a giggle factor, to being commercial only and we're never going to send people in space and we're not putting up exploratory, we're not doing science, we're not doing anything else, to maybe we'll do international collaboration. And, and then there was even briefly mention of a space force to match the Americans at some point. So are we heading more in a, a space direction for the Australian government and for defence, do you think? Is there, there are going to be a lot more things going on? Yeah, definitely. I think from what I'm reading online and looking at the way they're uh, working on their investments and policy decisions, it seems to me like they're definitely headed in the way of having more capabilities within space and diversifying things. And you can see that in the roadmaps that are being published in the space strategy, the civilian space strategy document, which sort of outlines all the uh, technologies that are of interest to them. And then Moon to Mars, Artemis program collaborations that are happening. There's grants being announced for those activities to sort of help Australian businesses to get into the international supply chain. And I believe that is a great indicator to the way things are shaping up and what's to come in the future. Do you think the Australian Space Agency making contracts with NASA and with the European Space Agencies and the other international space organisations will be an opportunity for Australian space businesses to fulfil those contracts on behalf of the Australian government? Definitely. I think plugging into the the supply chain is the first step and I think they're doing a great job from all the conversations that are happening from what we're seeing in media. It seems like it's moving in the right direction and eventually there's going to be a collaboration to build the new space station because as you know the, the old space station will be out of service at some point and you need partners to come together to build something as big as the International Space Station or perhaps even build something bigger than what we have currently. So you would need the participation of different countries, different capabilities and diversified supply chains. So I do think the steps are going in the right direction at this point.
Do you know what the international contracts that the Australian Space Agency has signed up? I know they signed up to partner with NASA on something, but I can't recall what it was. The one that we're aware of is the uh, the grant opportunity that we have through the Moon to Mars initiative. So there's lots of supply chain initiatives modern manufacturing initiatives that are connected to these things. So all of that is in the public domain that we get access to. And I'm sure there's a lot happening as we speak behind the, the scenes where they're trying to explore more opportunities, but uh, we'll have to wait for the public you know, news to come out. And if there was an Australian Space Force, do you think they'd be wearing Australian spacesuits? I think they should, for sure, because they've got the capabilities, everything is available, a very vibrant supply chain, diversified technology uh, portfolio. So yeah. I wouldn't see any reason why they should be relying on other spaces from other places. How do you think we would persuade more politicians that space is a serious business? Now that I think is a technically billion dollar question because politics is obviously, as you know, bipartisan in some countries and so sometimes you're just opposing things for the sake of it as opposed to actually looking at the merits of the technology. So if we could start establishing the collateral benefits of space technologies here on Earth in mass media, I think that's a great opportunity. Uh, For instance, a lot of work that we do also relates to orthopedics, helping people maybe uh, with their postures and gaits and all those kinds of things. So that's a great opportunity for people to say this isn't just sending people into space. This is actually ensuring you improve the human performance in extreme conditions, human endurance here on Earth. So I think that's a way you could explore. And then I think more positive publicity and use cases and technology that they could see, show and tell sort of thing, would be helpful as you move along. And I think that's a good way to start exploring ways to persuade them. Do you think the telemetry in your suits might have medical applications like for people in hospital in maybe in isolation units or something like that? Yeah, I could definitely talk about the Australia-New Zealand biobridge that we were a part of where we connected with the medical technology community because a lot of work that we're doing on capturing human performance indicators are biomarkers of the body and these biomarkers tell you a lot about the condition of the human body in space. So. There's a huge opportunity for us to learn from the medtech community and also for us to create new things that could have potential applications within the medtech space. Uh, Like what we'd be building would be more more space-resistant, radiation-hardened electronics, but then there's also an opportunity for us to explore new biomarkers that could tell us more about the musculoskeletal systems, hopefully even cancer research in the future. So that's a huge opportunity that we we have to bridge those gaps between the medtech and the telemetry in the spacesuit. Well, Kiriti, thank you again. Thank you, my pleasure. That was Kiriti Rambalta, CEO of the startup Metacosmos, building spacesuits in Sydney. You can see some photos from my trip on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. And rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 
Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in North East Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.